This is Radar by Nextworks. I'm your host, Stephen van Bellegem, and every month, my friends at Nextworks and I bring you the latest developments in technology, business, and everything related to innovation. Hi, my name is Peter Hinson, and I'm here with Pascal Coppens today. Uh, Pascal is our absolute China expert at Nextworks. He's one of the systemic hosts of our podcast, Radar. And we wanted to do a deep dive today on what is happening in the world of AI, but not from a Western perspective, which we often have, but actually a perspective from the East. We want to understand what happens with AI and especially Gen AI in China. We know so much about everything that happens in Silicon Valley, but we rarely talk about what happens in China. So Pascal, welcome and great to have you here. Well, great to be here, Peter. It's exciting to be able to talk about AI, a generative AI for this time, because uh, indeed, as you say, there's not much that we know about what's happening in China. And I follow it very dearly. And um, so I'm quite excited to be able to share some of these uh, insights, but also to understand how the West and the East are combining or trying to get to that next thing that is going to change the world. Yeah, and actually the root cause of this little podcast here is that uh, Pascal and myself had the chance to do a two-day masterclass recently in Scotland. And it was a very nice format. I mean, I would do a presentation, Pascal would do a presentation, we would weave them together to have a perspective on what is happening in the world of innovation and technology, but also really from the two sides, from the West and from the East. And it was fascinating because when Pascal was talking about what is happening in the world of AI from China, I had heard some of the names, but a lot of the names I had not heard of. And actually, it's something that we rarely pick up in our traditional media channels. So that's why we set this out. Just to be very clear, we're recording this podcast just after the OpenAI boardroom drama debacle, which was very interesting. One of my favorite quotes, Pascal, is from Lenin, who said, there are decades when nothing happens, and then there are weeks where decades happen. And I think we just had a weekend where, you know, <laughs> decades happened. We had that surprise firing of Sam Altman from the board of OpenAI. During the weekend, there were talks of him coming back. Then he was not coming back. Then he was hired by Microsoft to head their AI. And then by Monday morning, he said, no, nope, I'm coming back out. We're firing the board. So, you know, boardroom drama, uh, <laughs> certainly in the Western AI. But let's be honest, we're recording this just before the first anniversary of ChatGPT. Yes. Now ChatGPT seems just absolutely normal, but it's only been in our lives for, you know, 12 months. That's it. Let me start there, Pascal. If you go to, you know, the 30th of November, 2022, it's one of those Western pivotal moments of AI. Everybody, for the first time, probably heard the concept of ChatGPT, started using it, and then everything changed from that on. Was ChatGPT a big thing in China? Oh, yeah, it was definitely uh, in the beginning. Actually, many Chinese, just like anyone in the world, started using it. And um, ChatGPT was not available in China in the beginning. I mean, it's still not available, which means that most of the Chinese used VPNs, so virtual private networks, to access ChatGPT. They got really excited, and you could see the numbers just, just going really, really fast. So it had the same 
hype and, and same boom as we had in the rest of the world, except that it was an American product, and so it wasn't available in China. And then suddenly, a couple of weeks later, every Chinese company was saying, yeah, but we're working on this too. We're, we're doing this as well. And, and so we're going to release this as well. And so you could see this momentum building up after November 30th. But before that, everything was about AI. It wasn't about generative AI. It was the normal AI. The, the, the normal the, AI, yes. The plain vanilla AI. Yeah, yeah. Yes, and, and so the plain vanilla AI was really a race between China and the US. And at that point, already with Biden, it was very clear that China was the big target to limit their development in AI because it had risks on military development and so on. And so China was considered already at par or even be in head of the US in many aspects. And then generative AI came along and everybody was like, okay, so China, have they missed that train or what happened? And that is uh, where everybody kind of said, okay, the US is years ahead, China will not catch up. That was the story back a year ago. So let me break that down into a couple of things. First of all, just a couple of really quick ones. I mean, when you say that in the beginning when ChatGPT was launched and uh, people in China had to use a VPN, that's pretty common, right? I mean, there is still, I think, a number of typically Western technology platforms that you have to use a, a VPN. Is that still standard practice in China? Yeah, well, uh, most software platforms you cannot access in China because most companies like a Google, like Facebook, they don't want to agree to the censorship that China is putting onto the, the internet, which means that they say, no, we're out there. So you have to go through VPN, which is, by the way, illegal. Yeah. So it's not legal to go through VPN, but everybody in China does it, or at least the educated population of China, they go through VPNs. And that tells you something about the gray zone of China as well. But uh, everybody's using these VPNs to get there. And ChatGPT was no different. And then the second question I had is, uh, when I used ChatGPT the first time, I used it in English, but then quickly realized that it had been trained with quite a lot of different languages. I mean, you could easily have a conversation in Dutch or in French. How was that in China? So you know, could you have a conversation in Mandarin uh, using ChatGPT? And was it trained with Chinese content as well? So the ChatGPT in itself was trained primarily with English language. And so most of the Chinese, they use that English language. And many people that were interested in it were intellectuals, people that are used to read English, specifically when it's industry-related topics and so on. And so they used the, the English version. But Baidu and many others were already building their Chinese versions years before that. So it's not that it wasn't available. It's just that it wasn't available to the general public. Yeah. And I think one of the differences that slowed down China in the beginning was the fact that the government had not allowed any of these systems to be made available to the public, to the general public. This only was possible since this summer. So it's very recent, uh, summer of 2023, Chinese companies like ByteDance, Baidu, Alibaba, all these companies are allowed now to do it on a public site so anybody can actually use it. So let's go back in time. And as you pointed out, the difference between plain vanilla AI and then generative AI. And I think for me, one of the ways to look at it is that when you look at artificial intelligence, that's a field that's been evolving for 50, 60 years. And it was mostly an academic discipline in the beginning. Nice ideas, but we didn't have the computational horsepower to actually put it into effect. 
a lot of the concepts of neural networks have been around for 50, 60 years, but I remember studying that 30 years ago, but we just didn't have computers you know, powerful enough to then really put that into execution. And that's starting to change over time. And I think that first wave of AI was very much on the data, on the structured data. It was about using machine learning to actually take a lot of data and find patterns to you know, see where you could make predictions. And that was used in all sorts of things from you know, supply chain optimization mm -hmm. to thinking about you know, which you know, missiles to shoot out of the sky you know, to optimizing things like utilities and you know, access to electricity and water. It, it was a mainstream use of structured data. The Gen AI then shifted that towards the more content side of things, you know, the unstructured data and being able to generate images or texts mm -hmm. or, you know, the complexity now of embedding that into our work environment. Let's go to that first one, the plain vanilla. And I think this is a field that was, you know, often seen as originating back to the days of Alan Turing, you know, the, the first computer systems. And then I think we saw institutions like MIT, for example, in the West and, and Stanford becoming almost hotbeds of research on artificial intelligence. What I noticed when I became a fellow at MIT a couple of years ago is that a lot of the really smart students that were working on AI at MIT in Boston were actually Chinese. Students. Indeed. <laughs> and uh, they have always been you know, some of the shiniest and best of our you know, students at MIT. They were extremely bright. And for some reason, I saw a lot of Chinese students being drawn to that field of artificial intelligence before it became an absolute hype. So maybe give us a little bit of an evolution, Pascal, of AI in China. But let's do the plain vanilla first, and then we'll go to Gen AI. Yeah. Well, it all started in 2015 when Xi Jinping said very clearly that China should become the leader in global innovation. That was the first thing that it started. And then in 2016, 17, China was one of the first countries to have a national AI plan. They were ahead of the European Union, ahead of most countries in the world, to really say that we need to be a superpower when it comes to AI, not just because it's important for society, but because it will ultimately grow our economy. If AI is going to be put forward in China as one of the top priorities of the industry, what we will see then is that our GDP will grow faster. And, and China's GDP was growing slower every year, so from double digits to lower. So they needed something, and AI was the solution. So what's in an AI plan? What are the components of an AI plan when he talked about that in 2015-16? Well, the AI plan is a number of things. I mean, first of all, it's about talent, and that's what you talked about. So mm -hmm. it's about education. So all the universities, Tsinghua University, Beijing University, Fudan University in Shanghai, all of them needed to be busy with creating more talent related to artificial intelligence. But it was also on the local governments and local institutions in Shanghai, in, in Guangzhou, in Shenzhen, everywhere, they needed to have these R&D hubs. And they created these hubs everywhere around China, all AI hubs, to create talent, but also to create products around it and services around it. That was the second part of it. But it had also to do with regulation, which they started already in 2017, 
How do we regulate all that? Because this is a new beast in town. And how do we actually make sure that things keep censored, which of course with generative AI is an even bigger problem now for the Chinese government, yeah. but also that it helps to create a socialist country where the values of socialism are actually maintained, meaning that there's no harm to the system itself. Was that clear in the beginning, you know, how that regulation would play out? Or was that, you know, try and error? I mean, they started in 2017 to build it. And just now in 2023, they came out with the full-blown version, which means they've been working on this for the past five, six years. Yeah. Uh, so it's been an iterative thing. And there's been a lot of things coming out and say, oh, we have to be careful of that. We have to do that. And then this year, of course, with generative AI, it became very, very clear what the priorities were. And the Chinese government was the first government or first big country to release a full AI regulation for all the companies, uh, including like algorithms need to be verified, need to be approved. I mean, everything that is related to the data that is trained, they need to be cataloged and, and all that. And so it has to be verified and you have to be aware where it all comes from. And so the Chinese government is very on, on top of the regulation. And this is quite interesting just uh, on that aspect because I felt that the Chinese government, because they have been trained for the past six years in, in how to understand AI, they're probably the best knowledgeable administrators or, or bureaucrats in the world to understand what AI is all about these days. I want to go back to the talent because for me, that's one of the most fascinating things. I mean, I'd love to pick up the regulation part later when we talk about Gen AI because I think mm -hmm. that's going to then kick that into a higher gear. Mm -hmm. But when you said maybe the first priority was talent, making sure that the universities would generate enough people in that field, that mm -hmm. they would be able to populate the AI hubs in the regions. One of my favorite stories is that when you go back to the real start of the Cold War in 1957, when the Russians launched Sputnik, the U.S. was flabbergasted. They were made look like a fool by the Russians because yes. they had launched their satellite over the U.S. And then the U.S. did two things. First, a massive amount of investments into national security technology, mm -hmm. which eventually led them to win the space race. The second is a massive investment in talent. Mm -hmm. It's called the National Defense Education Act of 1958, where the U.S. said, we just don't have the same smart students as Russia. The Russians are just better at education, and we have to win that war. And they invested a lot of money, and the result is that less than 5% of the people that went to college before that, that jumped up to more than 15% in a few years. And they focused on science, technology, engineering, mathematics, mm -hmm. and languages because they wanted to have very good spies who spoke Russian. <laughs> so you can clearly see, I think the U.S. won the, the first Cold War because massive amount of investments and investment in talent. I have the impression that the U.S. is in this Cold War doing a lot of investments, but they are neglecting the talents. I saw the numbers, but you know, maybe you have more recent ones, that in China we have an output of 4.6, 4.7 million STEM graduates every year. Yeah. In India, it's 2.6 million. U.S. is just over 500,000. Yeah. That's almost a 10x difference. Yeah. I don't know what that is in AI, but in certainly general STEM, it's a big difference. Do you have any idea what the numbers are in AI? I don't know the exact numbers in AI, but I do know that AI is the best paying job these days 
as an AI expert, which worldwide, means that yeah. <laughs> worldwide, but, but, but for Chinese, I mean, that is a real incentive. I mean, let's not forget Chinese are really pragmatic. And if you have a kid as a parent, you will say, well, go and study AI, because that is means that our future as a parent will be set, because we also need to rely on our kids for our future. So it's very clear that uh, everybody wants to go into AI. And it's also a hot thing. And so in China, people like to go on trends. And if you are an AI expert, simply said, you will get respect from the community. And everything is about gaining faith and having respect. So yes, many people are studying this just because it will give them respect and visibility. And this is the reason that many Chinese went to the US, went to Europe to study AI, to study mathematics, to study these things that really could bring them um, all this knowledge. And now the question is, are they coming back to China, yes or no? Or are they staying in the US? And this is interesting because you see more and more in this tech war between the US and China that more and more experts are coming back to China simply because it's much easier for them to actually get a future that they can actually build on. They have the laboratories, they have the talent around them, they have actually the market that is demanding it. So if everything is there around them, I mean, it feels that they have more opportunity to actually build. While in the US, it's sometimes more difficult these days as a Chinese research, because some people will consider them spies. So it's not the respect you get that you would expect. No, I heard a colleague of mine at MIT say that, you know, five years ago, all the Chinese students just wanted to get their degree, move to California, become bloody rich, and now they can't wait to go back to China. So it's probably yeah. a, a, it's... a shift there. So in the plain vanilla AI, did Xi Jinping actually realize the ambitions? I mean, do you feel that Gen AI aside, but in embedding AI into what they do to try and become more efficient, to mm -hmm. optimize supply chains. Do you feel that you know, this is something that was not just about planting these research centers there, but it really had an impact? Do you already see that? Oh, yes. And, you know, Peter, I wrote a book. My first book was about, I mean, China's New Normal, which is, was a lot about artificial intelligence. I wrote New that Normal, in... what a great name. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was in 2018. I wrote the book, released it in 2019. And then I predicted a lot of things that would happen. If I look back now, five years later, I see a lot of these AI implementations that were kind of pilots or prototypes and, and ideas that materialized afterwards, specifically in the consumer area. If you look at retail, the fintech, I mean, with Ant Financial becoming the biggest fintech in the world, it's very obvious they were built on AI, on artificial intelligence. You see it with companies like Ping An in the insurance industry. You see it in the mobility industry. I mean, now the electrical vehicles are flooding our market, but there's a lot of autonomous in there already that's not being used yet in the West, but we do see it in China. And so, yes, I do think a lot of it has been realized. I do believe, however, that with generative AI, this could be a very small compared to what has been realized. So the, the step now could be even bigger because now it's about productivity. Now it's about going into a different way. It's not just about making processes more productive. Now it's really about making society more productive. Well, let's jump to the Gen AI because I agree with you. I, I had the chance to visit Ping Ang, the largest insurance company in the world, and to see three years ago already how AI was embedded into everything they did from customer interactions to mm -hmm. being able to follow up on a claim if you had an accident and 
everything was AI driven, I was blown away. I've taken many financial institutions, you know, to Ping Ang and show them what was already normal, you know, mm -hmm. back in those days in Shenzhen. So Gen AI, okay, so the world has completely gone crazy, certainly in the West. I mean, every student now uses it to write their homeworks and their papers. Many companies are trying to figure out what the impact is going to be on their workforce because my simple version of what is happening now is that in the world of factory automation, blue collar automation, it took us, I don't know, 25 years you know, to introduce the first robot into a factory line. And now the combination of human and machine is well established there. But in the white collar work where, you know, people who are working with procedures or with content or with documents are suddenly being catapulted into this. This is not going to happen in 25 years. This is going to happen in two and a half years. It's uh -huh. just like a compression of transformation. It's just mind blowing. And there's a couple of things I want to, you know, pick your brain on. The, the first is the players. I want to go to the impact later, but the players. And what we saw in the West is we saw the rise of new companies like OpenAI, Anthropic, relatively small startups. I mean, OpenAI has been around for a while, but Anthropic is like a spin-off of that. But all of a sudden, they became really, really, really big in this field. And what I've seen in the West is there's often there's almost like the traditional big tech, Microsoft, Amazon, Google, and then there is the new world and they almost play by proxy. I mean, Google acquired DeepMind, mm -hmm. 2014 already, but a lot of their AI work is through DeepMind. But Microsoft has a very strange relationship with OpenAI. It's almost like, oh, Microsoft <laughs> is, is the old big tech. And then they use the proxy of you know, OpenAI to actually do really cool stuff. And then they take some of that back and put it into their product. We saw a very similar move with you know, Amazon AWS using Anthropic. It's almost like traditional big tech, and then you have new players, but there is a relationship between them. Is that similar in China? Not at all. It's actually the opposite, or the, the flow or the direction is different, meaning that it's the big tech that started it. Baidu was the first one. The traditional search engine in China, right? Yes. And, and Baidu, the, the Google of China, as they call them, I even wrote that in my book before, that they understand contextual data much better than probably Google, simply because the Chinese language is very complicated to understand. Everything is about context. This is why they went into autonomous driving, because you can't predict if somebody's going to cross the road and how it's going to happen. Well, Google went into autonomous driving with Waymo yes. as well. So there's a similar yep. pattern. There. So there's a similar pattern, but they started with this first open AI type large language models very early on in 2019 for China. And you saw all the big tech actually taking the first step. And the reason was primarily because of chips and because of talent. Yeah. You need a lot of chips to build this generative AI. And you need so a lot of performance and computing power. You need a lot of performance and you need a lot of people that can actually build these things. And so the big tech had that. The startups didn't have that and they didn't get the funding because if you remember the last three, four years with the pandemic and everybody, it wasn't easy to get funding anyhow. And so at that point, it was mainly the Baidu's, the Alibaba's, the Tencent's, and now a newcomer, which is a huge company, is Huawei, which all of them have cloud, they all have chips, they're all having talent, they all have these algorithms, and so they're the ones that are pushing this forward. So the traditional tech players, if you want to call on that, yes. who had the computing power, yes. they were the ones who were in pole position to actually start developing these in China. Indeed. But 
And that's the interesting part. Of course, they worked together with universities and they worked together with startups that wanted to do something industry or vertical specific. And then they started funding these companies. And this is very typical in China that an Alibaba will fund one of those newcomers. And what you see now is that there's a few of these really, there's unicorns already, uh, generative AI unicorns in China. One of them is called uh, Baichuan, uh, was the founder of Sogo. I don't know if you know what uh, Sogo, yeah. but Sogo was the other search engine. Okay. This was the Bing of China. Okay. Uh, and so or this the Yahoo of China. The, the okay. Yahoo of China. Yeah. Sogo. And so the founder created uh, something similar to Anthropic. I mean, he created his own talent pool. And this is something that Alibaba and Tencent both invested in, which is quite unique. When Alibaba and Tencent both invest in one company, yeah. usually that means there's going to be fireworks in that company because they're very big competitors, Alibaba and Tencent. Same happened with another product called Jepu. And Jopu comes from Tsinghua University, the number one university in China, the MIT of China. And so these two were actually um, funded by Alibaba and Tencent. And the third one, which you probably know, Li Kaifu. Yep. Li Kaifu or Kaifu Li is the author of the AI Superpowers, one of the best sold books on AI coming from China. And he has a company which also now released his own AI, generative AI, large language model. And this is already a unicorn in just a couple of months' time. And they got invested by Alibaba as well. So you really see that these big guys... The Baidu's, Alibaba, Tencent, the BAT, as we call them, together with Huawei now, are the big push towards that transition, specifically because of chips, because of cloud, because of capital. They have the money. Yeah. When the rest of the world didn't want to invest, these companies were still investing. So uh, just a very, very quick one on the cloud that's always fascinated me, because in the West now, the cloud infrastructure or the cloud, you know, ecosystem of infrastructure has become a very strange race. I always call it a Coke and Pepsi war now in mm -hmm. the cloud in the West. You have the number one player, which is by far AWS. You have the number two player, which is Microsoft with Azure, and they are head to head. I think it's Coke and Pepsi, and you almost have religious differences, whether you choose Pepsi or Coke, and it's the same thing. The AWS developers are the fiercest developers I've ever seen, but also the Microsoft aficionados are just, you know, they will always defend Azure. It, it really reminds me of Mac and PC, you know, 20 years ago. But then there's the rest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Google has had real difficulty in putting Google Cloud even in that category. The traditional players like IBM or Oracle are basically just not in that first league anymore. It's become a two-horse race, really, in the West. How is that in China? How is the cloud, you know, infrastructure ecosystem? Well, in China, 80% of the cloud is Alibaba. Okay. And so most of the businesses are running Alibaba, just like AWS. They're the number one. And the number two is Tencent with Tencent Cloud. But you also have Huawei, who has their own cloud as well, which is more for business vertical solutions, like an airport might use the Huawei cloud, specifically government solutions. So you have the same thing, but ultimately it's not as religious, uh, simply because uh, Alibaba took the market and everybody else is kind of taking government money. Or Tencent is actually going more into social media and others. And, and so ByteDance also has their own solution. So everybody, the ByteDance is the TikTok company, they, they all have their own solutions. So, But there's a lot of solutions out there, but ultimately it's Alibaba that is the king uh, of the hill. In cloud. But back to Gen AI, I mean, when you talk about you know, uh, Baidu, Alibaba, Tencent, 
things. And those are what I would have suspected. Mm-hmm. But Huawei is an interesting one because yes. Huawei is, in my opinion, uh, I've always seen Huawei as playing in the same space as the Alcatels and the Nokias of the past, the competitor to you know, companies like Cisco in the past. But a lot of those companies have really stuck to bare metal, you know, the, the hardware companies. They were the ones building towers and you know, mm-hmm. building the technology to supply, but they were never an active player. We have not seen one of those companies in the West move into the realm of cloud. They might be a cloud enabler, but they don't really run a cloud. And now to see them, if I understand correctly, as even one of the players in Gen AI, that's yes. kind of a surprise. Oh, yeah. And, and they're full speed ahead. It means that uh, Sabrina Mung, who's the chairman of uh, at this moment, or she's running uh, Huawei at this moment. She's the one that was imprisoned in, in Canada. The, the daughter, for a long time, right? <laughs> for a long time, three years almost. Uh, so uh, the, the daughter of the founder, uh, Renzen Fei. A very long work from home uh, period. For <laughs> yes, so. yes, yes. And so that was the tension between the US and China, of course. But the reality here is that she said at Huawei Connect, which was in September, end of September, that the next 10 years, Huawei would put everything on intelligence and AI. This is one of their main goals, to make every business as smart as possible. And so they are on a mission to change every B2B or business-to-business kind of environment. And so their generative AI solutions are going into government services. They're going into the railroad. They've done weather forecasting, improved at 10x with normal weather forecasting using generative AI, gone into mining. So into all these businesses that you wouldn't think, well, how can you use generative AI in that context? And it's all about productivity and improving the services towards the clients, towards the customer, to understand the customer better. So it's about CX, it's about customer service, but it's also a lot about tools that really help the employees and help the people in this industry to to get better productivity. If I would make a comparison, Pascal, what I see happening in the West, which is like a non-usual suspect getting into Gen AI, it probably would be SAP. SAP is the largest software company in Europe, traditionally the supplier of ERP systems, which are you know the boring back office systems which run yes. companies, factories, and supply chains. They've gotten into Gen AI. They have a tool called Joule, which is their Gen AI solution. And you know, that's not the classical Gen AI where you, you know, you know, generate an image of the Pope playing piano, you know, but this is about how to use the context and the content that companies have yes. to optimize supply chains chains and to optimize and make their factories more efficient. But of course, you know, that's uh, even more difficult, I think, when you're Huawei and, you know, you traditionally would supply the technology for the network. So you have to really make a big jump there. Yeah, but they were forced because uh, the U.S. blocked most of the technologies that went to them. They couldn't use Android for their phones anymore. They couldn't use chips for their smartphones they and had for to their infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. And so you talked about ERP. Well, Huawei just released its own ERP this year. Of course they and did. it's it's gone company wide. Yeah. It's like 170 countries that they're in now. It's all using their own ERP, and now they're licensing that to other companies in China. And so yes, uh, they've made a big switch from becoming an infrastructure building to becoming more an intelligent building block builder, so people could actually plug on to their own industry and and their own content put in there to actually get more productivity out of it. And definitely in the global south, that is where Huawei 
is now trying to to make a dent because uh, that's where we are not focused as much in Europe or in America on the global south. We're more looking at business to business in the West. And so Huawei sees an opportunity in the next 10 years to make Africa and Middle East and Asia a lot smarter and productive in, in using their products. So that's going to be a big change. So back to Gen AI and when ChatGPT created a storm in the West after the 30th of November, and as you said, some of the Chinese companies had been working on this for a longer time, but you know they were maybe caught a little bit in terms of you know the release mania, and then they had yep. to figure out how to do that. Since you know this summer, as you said, you now have a number of these companies which are releasing their Gen AI. I imagine it's both similar, like here, it's texts, it's images, it's multimodal. Yep. But did it also create a little bit of a, a hype, like we had in? the West? Did, did we see students using it all the time now for their homework? I mean, was there a similar reception from the public as we saw in the West? Uh, it was very similar in China. There's, there's not much difference. Uh, but there, as I said, because they were delayed because of regulation that came late and, and people didn't know how to use it or couldn't use it in China, it was all going through VPNs, which means that they were using foreign so the OpenAI ChatGPT, and they weren't using the Chinese versions. So what happened is that the Chinese companies, and this includes the big ones, the BAT and Huawei, it includes those new unicorns, but it also includes the traditional AI companies, which we forgot about, almost about, like SenseTime, uh, a face recognition company that is also going into Gen AI. It, it's, it's, of course, iFlyTech, a translator company, uh, which also went into. But you see other companies that were a little bit the big AI companies companies before the 30th of November 2022, and that now all jumped onto that same bandwagon. And so many different environments, many different players, they're all looking at it. And since the summer that the government in China said, okay, here's the green light, you can now go and make this public. I mean, it's been crazy the past two, three months. And it, it's like there's 130 large language models available in China wow. right now. And this was numbers from two months ago. Chinese large language models. Chinese large language models, 130. I looked through the whole list just uh, yesterday. Uh, it's all in Chinese. <laughs> there was a list of 103 that I could find. Uh, I didn't find the 131. But the 103 list I had from the summer, there were 21 uh, institutions, so academics, uh, so universities. And the rest were all private companies, including, of course, the big ones, but also smaller ones. And they all have their own model. It's a assumed or estimated that 40% of all the large language models in the world are coming from China and 50% from the US. And that leaves, of course, Europe at about uh, less than 10%. But they're very clear on the large language model. And what's interesting, which I feel, is that in China, they're looking at different models for different verticals and different use cases. Is that why there's so many? Is the 130 really some are mainstream and some are more specific, more vertical? It's not just about verticals. It's also about, for example, being lightweight. This is something that you see a lot in, in China. Yeah. They want to make it as lightweight as possible to make it because chips are expensive. Uh, specifically, uh, they don't have, I mean, Alibaba runs the whole chip world and you have to get getting NVIDIA chips is difficult. So you can get the Huawei chips, but they need them themselves. So it's hard. So they get a lot of light versions, which means that it's ideal for companies who has their own data in, or content internally in the company. So you see a lot of these different versions coming up. Well, we see the same thing in the West as well. I mean, the whole discussion between the heavy large language models and the light large language models. And one of the companies in the West that is very much focused on that is, of course, Meta, the parent company mm -hmm. of 
Facebook yep. with Llama, which is a yep. much more lightweight in large language model, where they believe that eventually, if you want to use it on mobile phones, mm -hmm. you could actually reduce, you still have a very effective large language models, but you could put that on a much reduced computing footprint. Is that what's happening in China as it's well? It's exactly the same. And a company yeah. like Oppo, one of the bigger cell phone manufacturers, yeah, exactly. is doing exactly that. Yeah. They're trying to make a very lightweight versions, even multiple lightweight versions for different types of applications that you can use and all put in the same um, mobile phone. And they're working with Alibaba together with that. They're working with Huawei with that. So this is also interesting in China. There's a lot of collaboration happening. I don't know if that's happening in the US, but in China, you see a lot of companies working together to actually put those building blocks together because one has the chips, the other one has the talent, the other one ha maybe has the algorithms and, and someone else knows the customer well and, and so or has the data of the customer like a Tencent and that's what's happening a lot. It's more of a competitive red ocean, I think, in the West now. But <laughs> I mean, one of the things that I find fascinating when you talk about 130 large language models, I mean, it has to be trained, right? And yes. in the West, basically what happened is for the last 10 years without probably most of us knowing about it, everybody was scraped, scraped, scraped. I mean, companies that are now emerging like OpenAI have basically you know, found ways to just get access to anything that is out there on the internet. Mm -hmm. But how did that work in China? I mean, what is the raw material, the ingredients to train these large language models? Is that very similar? Were they, were they scraping Chinese content for a long time? Yeah, it is very similar. And there's a few big ones like Tencent, of course, who has more data than anybody you can imagine. One of the big differences, I would say, between China and America is that because of the super applications, and there's about 12 super apps in China, like Tencent with WeChat, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you have Ant Financial, they got a lot of contextual data, yeah. which means they knew a lot about what clients and customers were doing more than just that one service that you provide on that one application. So the data is actually pretty rich. And this has helped them in the plain vanilla AI a lot to really understand that data. But now it's even more interesting to get that contextual data because that's the user journey you can follow and, and understand what kind of services are needed, but also get data from it uh, or content from it that you can use for these large language models. So same thing. I can imagine that that is incredibly valuable because that is the problem now in the West is there is a lot of garbage in, garbage out in these yep. training of the models. And if you understand the metadata, which is the context, then you can have a much more, I think, focused you know, training and development of these large language models. But a big question that comes up, of course, now in the West is, hey, but wait a minute, if, if you actually just scrape content and use that to train a large language model, which is then going to be exploited commercially. Are we going to deal with, you know, things like copyright, intellectual property? I mean, you now have artists in the West who say, hey, you can ask one of these tools to, you know, generate an image in the style of the artist, and it's really good, but the artist isn't compensated for that. You have yes. authors like, you know, R.R. Martin, you know, who wrote Game of Thrones, who is now suing, you know, OpenAI because he believes that some of his content or ideas or visions were fed in. Is that something? which is playing out in China as well? Uh, yes, but it's double. Because on one side, Chinese are very pragmatic. 
And that means that copying, in order to advance something, if the society gets better out of, out of it, they actually accept it. I mean, there's an old Chinese saying that as a master, if you're an artist and you want to paint something, you first need to copy a thousand other artists before you can actually add something to it. So it's that concept that you need to first use everything you have and then add your own flavor to it. And, and so I think the Chinese are much easier in understanding that that this creation gets shared, specifically when it's about content that is not sensitive to intellectual property, specifically when it's about innovation and things that are patents, for example, that is different. But then on the other side, Chinese in the past three years have really been catching up on the privacy laws and they've put the PIPL in there, which is like the GDPR in, in Europe. And so it's very strict on how to use that data to protect the consumers to protect citizens. And so companies like Alibaba or Huawei, they need to be very cautious on how they use that. And they're looked at uh, with a microscope from uh, the Chinese government. So it's very clear that uh, the Chinese government is really on top of what can and cannot be done. And that is going to be the same challenge they're going to have as, as everywhere else in the world. Wow. Uh, I'm conscious of time. I, I want to maybe go to a couple of concluding questions, just quick ones. But one of the things that have fascinated me, Pascal, tremendously is the impact this is going to have on education. Mm. And having two kids, 19 and 23, that are now massively using this technology to not just help them study, but of course, you know, help them almost be like a, a sounding board when they make assignments or when they write papers. I know the education system in China is very peculiar and very, you know, I think very specific, unlike anything I have seen in the rest of the world. What is the impact now of Gen AI on the world of education in China? But AI was very obvious. I mean, AI was ahead with normal AI before it was Gen AI. Was, uh, China was ahead, meaning that there was AI courses and AI was used everywhere in universities. With Gen AI, it still needs to be seen because this is too soon yet. I mean, it's been just a couple of months that it's available in Chinese. And some of these systems are bilingual, English and Chinese, but it's, it's very recent. We are talking about one year now for the rest of the world, for China, it's two months. So it's it's too early to tell. But it's clear, knowing the Chinese students, and my daughter have studied in China herself in school, I mean, they will use these tools like full uh, speed ahead. But there's no reason why a student in China and or the parents would not agree to use new tools because the Chinese are much less afraid to use technology than we are often in Europe because we feel, yeah, this might, we might lose a job or we might have, it might be not what is expected. For them, they see it as a tool. Yeah. And so I think this is going to be faster, but it's only since September. So it's too soon to tell how big that hype will be, but I expect it to be pretty, pretty big. Yeah. And it's probably going to have an impact also on the way that, you know, maybe China thinks about education because mm -hmm. I remember, you know, the pressure on students uh, to get into the right universities. Yes. I yes. mean, the intensity of extracurricular studying outside of school, which was a big thing in China, mm -hmm. and the amount of money that families would spend on that, uh, probably the opportunities to use Gen AI in that respect are going to be massive. Well, Baidu's Ernie, which is the chat GPT of Baidu, 
actually had already done a test on the entrance exams for university and they passed it with 85 percent uh, wow. which is 10 percent higher than the than the <laughs> students uh, on average uh, that actually pass the the exams so it's yeah. clear that the large language models already and it was in five categories so it was it was really in in everything so baidu's chat gpt uh, called ernie is actually already ahead of many other solutions when it comes to the entrance like so the answer is yes it, it will happen. Oh, fantastic. Uh, maybe a final element, uh, Pascal, is this is, of course, first of all, fascinating. So thank you for that. It's wonderful to get a glimpse of what happens you know, in China on that subject. But this has, of course, become you know, an absolute geopolitical pivotal hotbed. We had the Bletchley Park AI Safety Summit recently, where Chinese scientists and tech leaders attended as well. Mm-hmm. It was a world a gathering of the world's political and technological leaders in that field. But the bombshell came at the beginning of that week when President Biden, you know, basically issued his executive order on AI. And he was very clear in that executive order. He wants the U.S. to remain the leading nation in AI. It reminds me very much of what you, you know, said that Xi Jinping talked about in 2015, yeah? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But it was, you know, two things came out of that. One, everybody who trains a large language model on a U.S. hyperscaler like Azure or, you know, AWS has a reporting duty into the White House. Mm -hmm. And two, it was a massive invitation for basically foreign AI talent to come to the U.S. and become U.S. citizens to work on that future. Mm -hmm. Uh, How do you see this playing out into that geopolitical tension between China and the U.S.? Because recently Xi Jinping went to San Francisco. Yeah, and he uh, talked about AI. Uh, With with Biden, because that was on the agenda. And and so it's very clear that China wants to be part of the global AI regulation as well, simply because they see as much the opportunity as they see the dangers. And so they are part of what they've developed. They see what could happen wrongly. And so they wanted to go and be part of that. And it was interesting because in that summit in the UK, the safety summit, many of them uh, said, well, we shouldn't invite China. And then Elon Musk was one of the people that say, no, you have to invite China because (laughs) if you're not going to invite China, I mean, you're going to miss out on so much of the things that are happening there. And if they are developing things that we don't know about, I mean, that might be dangerous for us as well. We need to work together on this. So it's very clear that China is using the regulation as trying to be universal in terms of having that regulation for the whole world. So that definitely is is a direction. Now, I think the geopolitical war is just going to increase. Yeah. It's going to increase simply because Biden has really limited as much as he can. And, and just a couple of weeks ago, he said, there's new chips from NVIDIA that can't get into China. There's talent that can't get, you can't get investment into China, into AI as well. So, I mean, for some VCs, this is actually a limitation. So there's a real war going on. And China is going to counter that by building internally as much as possible. But also, and this is one of the things that I think will really change China, is to go more from a production with normal AI to service industry in terms of generative AI. And this is the full focus where you can see China wanting to become the leader of the service industry worldwide, which is what we are in the West. I mean, with SAP and and Amazon, and we're all service providers. Uh, The service as ratio of GDP in the US is 78%. Now in China, if you want to know this, in 1980, 
it was only 22% of their GDP. Today, it's 54%. 54 already, wow. 54. Yeah. And so their goal is just to increase that even further. And so this geopolitical war is not just about chips. It's not just about technology. It's about brains. It's about knowledge. It's about insights. It's about content. And I think that is where China is now trying to become the leader in maybe content delivery in a smart way. Because if the service industry increases, which will increase consumption, it will uh, increase jobs, which they need as well, because there's a job issue as well in China. It will increase innovation because that's where most of the innovation is happening. The living standards should increase from services. I mean, productivity. I mean, there's a lot of things that is happening. So I'm very bullish on China. And companies like Huawei, if you see the transition going from basically a telecom company to almost a, a software and a service company, you see that not just in the Alibabas and the Tencents, which are used to do that, but you'll see that in many companies going forward. Yeah, and that's going to be a big change. It's going to be a big change. And, and Huawei is probably a really you know prominent example of China moving away from being the factory of the world yes. into uh, completely different the, levels. You know, a Brain of the world. And <laughs> brain of the world. And I think that's going yes. to be an interesting thing. So, yes. well, thank you very much, Pascal. It was wonderful to talk to you. I think we should maybe do this again and revisit this. Love maybe to. we should uh, write a blog post or maybe even write a book together because I think it's <laughs> fascinating to try and put the geopolitics of innovation together in that way. So, Pascal, thank you very much. Well, thanks, Peter, for having me. It's great to be here. Wonderful. Well, thank you very much for listening. Hope you enjoyed it. We are going to continue this. So, uh, stay tuned. And we still have our NextWorks Radar podcast, which comes out on a regular basis if you want to hear more. For now, signing off and wishing you a wonderful, innovative journey going forward. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Radar by NextWorks. If you enjoyed the show, please tell your friends and colleagues about it. And don't forget to give us a review score, which really helps to boost this podcast. We'll be back with a new episode of Radar next month. Meanwhile, to stay in touch, please follow our podcast and go to our website nextworks.com to subscribe to our newsletter. Take care.